Money is a sensitive issue at the best of times and particularly where religion's involved. In one sense, it should be because there's so much charlatanism around in our world. We get scams, we get all sorts of things and it happens in the religious world and religion has been used to empty people's pockets by unscrupulous people because of their immorality and greed. It's been the case in almost every culture and every religion and Christianity is not immune whether it's today's televangelists asking supporters to reach out in faith and buy them a $54 million jet, as Jesse Duplantis recently did, because he'd be subject to demonic attack if he travelled on a public jet plane, or whether it's the incredible wealth of the Vatican that Luther saw and he saw them getting money from sales of indulgences with the promise that this protects you not just from past sins but from sins you've not committed yet and even family members that uh, have died, you can save them by your money uh, or whether it's you know, even going back to the book of Acts and Simon Magus who saw the miracles that the apostles could do and, and wanted to learn their secrets so that he could profit off doing the same things. Charlatans have always posed as angels driven by their greed. And so it takes on lots of forms, but religious forms are very, very common. And you may be wondering why on the very week that we reopen church, uh, which is really exciting, why is it that money happens to be the topic? Is it because we've run out of it and we need some more? Uh, are the ministers just trying to massage your hip pocket because we think we can loosen up the strings? Well, if you're worried, it's we chose it because we left off here uh, last year in 2 Corinthians. We finished at 2 Corinthians 7 and we plan to come back today, back in November 2019 when we wrote the whole year's preaching program. And so that's why we're here. And for those who haven't been around or who need reminding, Paul has written to the church in the Greek city of Corinth twice now because it was a church that was always in chaos. In the first letter, 1 Corinthians, the church was in chaos because they'd been a young church back then and they were working out what to do because those who preached the gospel to them, Paul and then Peter and then others, had, had all gone away to preach the gospel elsewhere and so they'd become divided very quickly over all sorts of different issues like leadership, about love, sex and marriage, about how much of their old pagan religion they could keep hold of and, and who amongst them was the most spiritual and Paul had written that first letter to weigh in on all those different issues. But now, sometime later, another much deeper problem has arisen. Uh, they've been infiltrated by a new group of leaders. It's kind of been a power vacuum and these guys have come in. They call themselves the super apostles. We're going to hear more about them in the weeks to come. And so they're calling themselves even better than the old ones, not just apostles, but super apostles. And they're preaching a new sort of Christianity, a super gospel that seems to be way more impressive than Paul's old one. They're saying, if you're a Christian, you follow Jesus, you should have power and victory in this life. And, and if you're suffering, then it's because God's not on your side. And so look at Paul and how weak and pathetic he seems to be. They've been pointing out how he's been bashed and hounded out of every town he goes to. He must be a loser. How could God be with him? How can his gospel be right? And they're saying his gospel must be weak and pathetic just as much as he is. 
And to make matters worse, they've started casting aspersions about Paul, saying that he is not to be trusted. He's two-faced, he's insincere, he doesn't care, he didn't turn up when he promised to. Look, he's always letting the side down. And so Paul writes this second letter to them, in part as a defense of his ministry to them, but it's much more than that. Because it also happens to be the clearest articulations in the whole Bible of what genuine, authentic Christian ministry is and what it looks like, which is perfect timing for us as we come out of COVID and think about what church is and, and what things we should be on about. Not just so that we won't get sucked in by charlatans ourselves, but so that we can get on with being a church who are committed to doing the work that God's given us to do of being his ambassadors in this world. That's what 2 Corinthians describes us as, his ambassadors making his appeal be reconciled to God and, and going about it in the right way. Here is what authentic Christian ministry is like. Authentic Christian ministry, if you go back through the sermons or you read through the letter, it's faithful. It's faithful to God. It's faithful to the message once for all proclaimed and it's faithful to the people who we've been entrusted to care for and share it with. Authentic Christian ministry is unimpressive. We have this glorious, wonderful treasure in the gospel, but it comes in these jars of clay that don't look like much or sound like much. It's not about personality or about the power of our rhetoric, but it's the plain holding out of God's promises in his gospel. Authentic Christian ministry perseveres. It always pushes on. Paul had been beaten down. He'd been whipped. He'd been shipwrecked. And he'd been literally left for dead on the side of the road. And each time he'd gotten back up and gone back at it again because Christian ministry and Christian ministers who really know the gospel will persevere and push on. And finally, he said that authentic Christian ministry does all of that because of the motivation that lies behind it. It's got right motives. It's motivated by seeking to please God and not people. It's motivated because we're compelled by the love of Christ and our life is not our own and we want to serve him who died for us so that we might live. And it's motivated and driven by an awareness and a sure sure knowledge of the future, both the glory that's to come for those who are in Christ, but also of the horror and tragedy of those without him. And perhaps with that background in mind, you can understand why Paul might bring up this subject of money. He'd started a collection last time he was with them for what was going on in Jerusalem, as we'll hear it in a minute. But if these super apostles have been undermining the church's confidence in Paul and calling into question his character, and if they're also willing to call into question the gospel that that means if you know, their new super gospel is if you're on God's side, you'll succeed, then what's the deal with the huge sums of money that Paul had started putting together last time he was here at his request for a relief effort for overseas Christians, the Christians in Jerusalem who were suffering through a terrible famine that you can read about in Acts chapter 11. Why should we help them? If the Christians in Jerusalem are suffering, why would we help them? 
They, they just need to believe the new super gospel and they'll be right and we can hang on to our money. And after all, God's blessed us with it. It's for us. Why would we just give it away? And, and if we did choose to give it away and be generous, how do we know it's really going to get to where he says it's going to go? Why would we trust Paul who we don't believe he's trustworthy and why would we trust his mates with all of that cash that we started gathering together? And so it's clear from verse 10 in 2 Corinthians 8 that they were having some very serious misgivings and second thoughts about the whole thing and whether they should just you know, give the whole money back to those who gave it. You started getting the bunch of cash together, he says. You were eager to serve when I talked to you about it. You were wanting to do good for these brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem, but you've been interrupted. Doubts have crept in and you've stopped and you haven't followed through. And so for two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, Paul just wants to tackle this one issue. But while it's about raising money for the famine relief back then in Jerusalem, and you know, there was a particular time and circumstance around it, God's given it to us as part of his good word to us so we can learn some fundamentally important principles about giving and generosity now. Here is a picture of life according to God. And not just what we do with our money, but what we do with everything that God has blessed us with. Our homes, our resources, our time, everything that God has given us, the, the abilities that we have. And, and the Corinthians themselves have been exceedingly blessed. You can see that in verse 7 of chapter 8. Now, as you excel in everything, says Paul, in faith, speech, knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. The church in Corinth was the most gifted and wealthiest church in the whole of the New Testament. It was full of successful people who thrived off the commercial success of this key trading port in Greece. They are high-powered wheelers and dealers. They're entrepreneurs. They are people who've made it in the world. These are the VIPs, the ones who get the special seats. They are competent people, but they also happen to be the most unspiritual of all the Christians of the New Testament. Giftedness and wealth do not equal spiritual. And that's hard for us because we judge so often on externals, don't we? And so Paul's writing this to give them an opportunity now to excel in something else that's way more important than the things they're impressed with about themselves. To excel in this act of grace, to excel at generosity, which is what grace is. The word grace means generosity, it's kindness, it's big-heartedness that shows itself in giving. And as we look at the first half of the argument today, we're, we're going to see that there's two powerful examples that Paul gives of generosity. Then we're going to see what the aim of generosity is, why, why it is we should be generous, and you know, what the effect is, but also what plans they put in place to protect and encourage and foster generosity. And when you grasp something of the grace and generosity that he's talking about, 
it completely turns the values we, we have about money that we've just imbibed from the world and not really thought through. It turns them all on their head. So let's start with the two examples of generosity. The first example is that of the Macedonians, the Macedonian Christians. What Paul says is that the grace of God is exhibited, is demonstrated, and it reaches its fulfillment in the generosity of the Macedonian church. For if you're overflowing with the grace of God, if you're the recipient of the grace of God, you're not big enough to contain it and it will, will bubble and flow out from you. Grace is not something that you're able to hold on to and you can contain. And that's what's happened with the Macedonians. You see it in verse 1 of chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches in Macedonia. Notice that's the grace of God given to them. This is God's generosity to them. What does God's generosity look like? During a severe trial brought about by affliction, which I presume is persecution that was happening around at the time, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What is the grace of God to them? It's that they are generous to others. That's weird, isn't it? They're, the whole sentence doesn't trying to gel with us in the way that our world thinks. Their abundant joy, think about it, their abundant joy and extreme poverty together, joy and poverty together, uh, overflowed in a wealth of generosity. The world doesn't get that, does it? They think extreme poverty must mean misery. But we who know the Lord, Jesus, we, we know that we're rich. It's a complete difference to life that we can cope with suffering and poverty and not just cope with it, but thrive and rejoice and even abound in it. But notice what they did. Out of their joy and their poverty came an outpouring of generosity. Now, you'd expect that the poorer people wouldn't be generous, but the rich could be generous. Because, but that's only because you don't understand human nature. Right? It's a, it's a, it's the opposite. It's the rich who tend not to be generous and it's the poor who tend to be. And, and look how far their, their generous giving went. You see it in verse three. I can testify according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord. It wasn't forced out of them. They begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And not just as we hoped, instead they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. Now that really is generosity, isn't it? When someone gives not of their excess and abundance, but not just their spare change, but gives of the stuff they need to live on themselves, it's the kind of thing that can only come, truly come from a changed heart. It's like the widow that Jesus comments on in Luke chapter 21 who gave two copper coins, all that she had to live on, and he says this woman was the generous one. Everyone else gave out of their abundance. They are like that. And notice they didn't just give to the cause they'd been asked to give to. They'd been asked to give to the famine relief of the Christians in Jerusalem who were suffering, but that's what he means by the ministry to the saints, but they went far beyond that. They begged, he says, not just for the privilege of sharing with them, 
they also begged to make a contribution to Paul's own ministry to see that the gospel would keep going out. One of the problems that we face now is that there are just so many demands on our money. There's the demands we have in our own life, but there's the demands that other people are making and all the appeals that we see from every different group on TV, coupled with, you know, photos of, you know, impoverished children or, you know, beaten up animals or whatever it might happen to be. And there are so many organizations out there asking for money working out who to give to and how we're to give and whether we give a little bit to everyone who asks or, you know, do we give it all to one cause or how do we divide it up? Under God, the Macedonians decided to give to Paul, to give themselves and their support to the man who brought the gospel to them, not because it would benefit them any further, but because he was the one they trusted to keep taking the saving message of Jesus out to the world faithfully and diligently. That is, they weighed up what really matters and they made a decision. They didn't give to every cause. They didn't even give all that they could to the one cause they'd been asked to give to. They didn't give to others who were suffering in the very same famine. They weren't giving to the non-Christians in Jerusalem or those throughout the Middle East. They determined they would support their Christian brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and then, uh, rather general aid, because they understood the principle that Christians need to care for each other and to bear one another's burdens. You see that in Galatians chapter 6 and other places. But, but they also thought there was something more valuable even than that. That something more valuable than eating, feeding another Christian family that they could have fed for another day. And that was the preaching of the gospel of life and forgiveness which brings relief not just from crisis today, but relief from the eternal crisis of judgment. And it brings lasting hope and joy and life, life beyond next week, life into eternity. Can I encourage you in your generosity, be generous, that's what we've been called to do, but can I encourage you in your generosity only to give or at least strongly prioritise Christian organisations. I'm very glad that organisations exist like Oxfam and Fred Hollows Foundation and the RSVCA and the Westpac Helicopter and things like that. Uh, and, and some of them even were started by Christians like the Red Cross and the RSPCA. But there are so many non-Christians out there in the world supporting those foundations. They're the ones the advertising that we see on TV is about. They're the ones that many, many, many people are giving to. And they're great organisations. And I want to encourage the non-Christian world to give to those organisations. I want to encourage our government to be generous and support those in need. But if I can encourage that, then I can encourage Christians not to give anything other than Christian causes. Not that those charities aren't worthy or valuable in and of themselves, but the Christian dollar is such a rare commodity that we need to conserve it for those things that will really advance the cause of the gospel of Christ because no one else is going to do that. And so thinking through your giving to church and to to missionary organisations as a church, we choose to support CMS and AFES and uh, Evangelism New Churches, uh, groups like Moore College. 
or Anglicare and Anglican aid through whom we receive things back for our own charity and break the cycle. They're the kind of things to support with your Christian dollar because they're the things that advance the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Macedonians did. And so follow their example, not just of sacrificially giving till it hurts, but also their example of working out what really matters and where that generosity should go, where it should find expression. But there's a second and even greater example that Paul shows us. It's in verse 9, and and it truly is one of the most magnificent verses in the whole Bible. And if you brought your own Bible to uh, watch this on your screen, uh, and you haven't just borrowed a church one from before COVID, uh, this is one of those ones to highlight and underline and, and to learn off by heart. You see it there, verse 9? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, Yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The greatest example of generosity, of grace, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Here is the ultimate example of giving of yourself even beyond your ability. He's the example that the Macedonians followed themselves. You look at what his generosity meant. Have a look at it. Though he was rich, which he absolutely was, rich beyond all counting, equally God with the Father and the Spirit, seated in glory, attended by countless uh, armies of angels, the heavenly hosts, uh, Jesus, the one who who owns the whole universe and owns the world. It's, it was his from creation. Yet though he was rich, Yet for our sake, he became poor. He became poor, not just in his incarnation to be born amongst us at all. That was a great giving up, let alone the fact that he was born into a poor family in a stable that we remember at Christmas. But even had he come with a harbour view from the largest house in Kirribilli, he would still have been impoverished. The best house in the world would still be nothing compared to what he already had. Though he was rich beyond all imagining, he became poor, taking the form of a human. Why did he do that? So that he might become obedient, even to death, even death on a cross. Now, you can kill people in all sorts of different ways if you set your heart to it. And a good Roman soldier could do it in very many ways, but the cross was reserved. It, was, uh, it wasn't just about execution. The cross was about shame. It was about making a public statement. This was the king of the Jews. Now look at him, naked, defiled, screaming in agony, twisting in pain. A public display given as a warning to anyone who would dare oppose the Roman regime. It's the kind of thing that Vlad the Impaler did in impaling bodies and putting them up for public display. It's the same kind of effect of shaming and showing contempt. But even the shame and the contempt wasn't the worst thing for Jesus. He who ruled the universe from before all creation became so impoverished as to die, calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And why did he do that? 
so that we who are so impoverished, and he's not talking about how big our investment portfolios might happen to be or which suburb that you live in or even what's in your wallet or your bank account at the moment. We're impoverished in our sinfulness. We're impoverished in our slavery to the devil and our slavery to death and our slavery to this world and to the disease that leads to death and to the sin that shows Satan's conquest us. He took our sin upon himself. His impoverishment is our impoverishment so that he took our place, poor, wretched sinners as we are, in order that we who were so impoverished might become rich. Rich beyond all expectation and splendor. The world might see us Christians as poor and weak and pathetic, but in Christ Jesus we are rich. We are sinners who become priests. We are slaves who become kings. And we will reign with him in glory and splendor for all eternity. Yeah, enemies who've been adopted as sons and, and welcomed into the family. That's what grace is all about. That, that's generosity. And when you finally grasp something of it, because we'll never get all of it, something of this magnificent generosity, then all of your values about money and about giving and generosity and keeping and hoarding and saving and, and, and caring, they all turn on their head. Because I stand as a Christian man purely based on the generosity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter how much I give, it'll be as nothing compared to what he has given in order for me to be born again and be part of his family and be forgiven and have life. It's a wonderful thing. Verse 9, isn't, is, it's just wonderful, isn't it? That's one to commit to memory, highlight it, put it on a poster. This is generosity. And this is the generosity the Corinthians needed to learn and to take to heart. And, and maybe it's the generosity that you need to learn as well. But there's still two questions that Paul wants to deal with. Why should the Corinthians back this particular cause of the relief effort of the Jewish Christians in the famine? And what assurances can Paul offer that the money's really going to get there, particularly seems since he's been criticised as not being trustworthy? How do we know he's not a charlatan who's going to run off with it all? I'm just going to whip through them both very, very quickly. Firstly, why this cause and not any other? What's the aim of being generous in this particular way? Particularly important if you're going to give till it hurts like the Macedonians to know why. And the answer Paul gives is in verse 13. He says, it's not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, but it's a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need so that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality. As it's written, the purse who had Much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. Now, if you're interested, I'm going to talk a lot more about equality tonight on the cutting room floor because he's not proposing a sort of Christian communism where the church should try and arrange things and make sure that every Christian has exactly the same standard of living no matter where they are. It's not about equal outcomes as in socialism. It's not that. It's about reciprocity. 
You guys in Corinth, you happen to be very well off now. You've, you, you know, the trade routes are going well. Everything's happening. And so give to them in your abundance and in their poverty, because in the future, you just may need their abundance to be given to you. Because in Christ and in the community of Christian people under the sovereignty of God, it all works out in the end. And you cannot trust in your wealth and your investments anyway. There, that's no sign that God's on your side. Those super apostles may be saying that it is, but it's a lie. And there are no guarantees that you'll always have it. And it's, it's not as if the Christians in Jerusalem haven't believed the true gospel they have. But empires collapse, even financial ones. And circumstances can change drastically for, for cities, for countries, for suburbs and for families. I mean, just look what's happened this year in COVID. And people who were doing well now aren't. People who thought they were on top of the world have died. Those who are high have been brought low and others have done well. And who's to say why this one and not that one? And if we're not there for others now while we're well off and well supplied, how can we expect that they'll be there for us in the future in our need? And so I'm being called that while I have it, I have it from God in order to do good. I have it to be generous with. And I do it knowing that God will look after his people and he will look after me, which he does most commonly in this world, not by superannuation, not by storing away investments. He does it by using other believers to care for each other. So I'm called upon not to hoard not to take, not to protect my future by storing up now just in case and, and not by worrying about the future too much. I'm called upon by God to live by his word, the word of God, which will be seen in how I use the money he's given me to be generous to others for his glory and for his purposes. And not just so our money, but not just money, but all that we have from him. You know, our homes, our talents, our time as well. Well, that's all well and good, but if I'm going to be generous, how do I know it's not going to be going to religious charlatans taking the money for their own personal gain? How do I know I can trust Paul, you know, the Corinthians might say. You know, Paul, yeah, prove yourself to us. And he does it, he gives an answer. And he says you do it by making sure that there are good structures in place with right checks and balances. And Paul wants them to know the checks and balances he's put in place so they can have confidence that their generosity will really go where it's supposed to go. What was his system? We won't read it. It's the end of the chapter from verse 16 onwards. But basically he says the plan is to have multiple representatives coming and counting and carrying the money. There's going to be a rep from me, from Paul, uh, one of his right-hand men, Titus, who they already know and they like and they trust. Uh, there's going to be a rep from the churches overseas who the money's going to and who's going to be selected by, well, he's already been selected by those churches um, and because of his trustworthiness. But there's also going to be a third person, that's someone who's from the Corinthian church themselves, who's, who's currently with Paul, who they know and have confidence that Paul has confidence in as well. And so multiple people selected from different sources, vetted by everyone, and everyone can have confidence in checks and balances, representation. It's the same reason, actually, that we have 
two different members from two different families counting our offertory in church. It's the right principle. And even then we get someone else to double check it later when it's banked to make sure. That's not hard for us to organise a couple of members to do that at each of our services. But you think of the effort it must have been to coordinate for Paul. You know, no international communications, no phones, no emails. Uh, The selection processes he had to go through in order to make sure that everyone was happy with this choice. You know, the, the elections or whatever they had to do. All done to protect and foster the generosity of God's people. And it was absolutely worth all the effort. It gives protection and it's protection that fosters even more generosity. Do you know the grace of God? You do? Then what is he calling us to do? Is to be generous. It does not matter what suburb we live in or which street we're in or, or what we earn or even if we have a job at all. Here is the overwhelming generosity that God is calling us to model ourselves on. The, the model that was seen by the, the Macedonian churches and that we can copy them, but the, it's the example, the model of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who though he was rich, became poor for our sake, that through his poverty we might become rich. Not so that we can hoard and take and protect our own interests and our own futures, but so that we can be like him. That's what he's calling us to. And if you know the grace of God, the generosity of God, then you'll find it almost impossible not to be generous. That's what the grace of God does to you. Big heartedness. That's what we've got to have. For the gospel is the gospel of grace and our God is the God of grace. Therefore, giving, being gracious, being generous is profoundly and essentially Christian. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your generosity to us in the Lord Jesus, that though he had everything, he gave it all up so that we could be forgiven and have life, be part of your family and kingdom and rule with you forever. Father, help us to cling on to that gospel, to never be moved from it. When we hear lies that say that that gospel is not enough, that it's wrong or defective or insufficient, Father, help us to flee from those who would say it, And we pray, please, that they would fail in their efforts of communicating false gospels. But Father, help us to trust the truth and be transformed by it. Give us a generosity like you have given us. We pray, please, that we might give of ourselves and even beyond our ability to serve you and your purposes, that your people might be cared for in this world and that your gospel might go forward. We pray for our missionaries. We pray for Amy Stevens in Argentina. We pray for Lewis Jones in uh, the AFES work. We pray for Matt Bales with ENC ministering to Muslims in southwest Sydney. Father, please, we pray that they would remain faithful to you. We pray that we would have confidence in the structures around them 
and we pray that they would be uh, uh, pure in their motives and that the organisations that they represent might deal well with the cash that's given them. And we pray, please, for our generosity in supporting them in making sure they are well supplied, that they might continue in this work and bring glory to you. And we pray for ourselves in our own personal generosity that we might be generous with the gospel, we might be generous with our things, we might be generous with the money you've given us in order to be like the Lord Jesus Christ and give him all the glory. Amen.